Welcome to Afro Catalyst. I'm Isaac Okufoko Jr., founder of Boto Emerging Markets Group, a leading consultancy focused on the global south. Each month, I talk to trailblazers to understand the challenges and opportunities they face in pushing their respective industries forward. Coming up, Nigeria-born June Angelides, an investor, activist, and busy mom of three, a self-described happiness spreader. She's mastered the art of reinvention, having successfully navigated multiple career shifts and driven by a deep desire to help entrepreneurs from diverse backgrounds realize their dreams, despite facing unique challenges when it comes to funding. Her work hasn't gone unnoticed, with the Financial Times hailing her among the top minority leaders in UK tech. She's been featured in Forbes and even been honored by the Queen. In this episode, June and I chat about championing innovation in other people's blind spots. Let me start with the most obvious question where everyone is going to ask you, how are you really doing during this very difficult time of pandemic and everything else in between? Between homeschooling and trying to keep up with our portfolio and trying to to stay sane and centered in all of this, I think because we suddenly found ourselves confined and unable to see people which was so core so I think there was a lot of pressure to over deliver and I had to be really intentional about my diary and now I will block out time to do something that makes me happy I started working with a personal trainer and I I work with a coach once a week and I also block out time whether it's to read to listen to a podcast to go on a walk and I make sure I'm really intentional about that and then I don't start work before nine o'clock and I'm stopping at five because whether I like it or not I've got three kids I I, that's sort of a natural stop point I gotta go make them dinner so that helps me stay centered people were working from seven till nine and I'm like you you would you'd normally take a break if you were going into the office. You'd you'd go for a walk. You'd go get your lunch. A lot of people I spoke to just felt that they had to prove they were working, and I think it's been really reflected in the fact that we're seeing a lot of innovation in the mental health space. I see on a daily basis new solutions around health, about meditation, and I and I think there there's going to be a, a big reckoning for sure. Absolutely. And it's interesting because I think for your career, I mean, if, I, if I'm getting this right, you started, you, you know, after university, you went into media, then from me, you went media to banking um, and then now technology and now sort of now venture capital, you know, and, 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 and it strikes me as interesting because I, I was listening to something you said and you talked about this, I think it was called mindset and this idea of the, the brain, you're, the mind you're born with and the mind that you also create or whatever it is. But what is it about your values and who you are? that allows you allowed you that space and to allow yourself the freedom to explore as you do because it sounds intellectually simplistic when one one lays it out but it's not clearly <laughs> right it's, it's not because if it is we'll be doing it <laughs> I, th- I think a hundred percent a key element has hundred percent you know been my background i think about the family i grew up in in nigeria entrepreneurship was at the very core of it. My grandfather had started a business um, when he was in his 50s and he'd grown it into this, you know, amazing, amazing enterprise and bringing his kids on that journey with him, getting them involved in the supermarket when they were little, really 
instilling hard work and humility. And I think for me, that's something that I really held close to me, seeing how he worked with everyone, but he never let let ego get in the way. And I think ego can be to the detriment of a lot of ideas and and improve self-improvement because I don't know it all. And I've never seen any family member display that trait. Everyone has been, always been vulnerable, always open about challenges. And, I, and that's been very common to see that conversation happening at the dinner table with my mom and her and her siblings talking just troubleshooting and I and I've always realized that if you don't ask you don't get my mom always taught me that and and that's that's really what's helped me on my journey you know with vulnerability never claiming to know it all being always curious about how I can improve and and do better there's always room for improvement and I think the minute you stop learning you're just going to stagnate Absolutely. It's interesting because I think a lot of what you're talking about reminds me of this idea of finding asymmetrical opportunities in the blind spots. And I think you're queen of finding those opportunities in the blind spots. And so you created Moms in Tech out of your own lived experiences. And, you know, it's something that you built, something that you're very, you're, you're very proud of. What role do you think that people's experiences play in driving innovation? Um, and, and also along that, how do we create platforms for that? I asked you because a lot of times people assume innovation is this thing that's in the sky. And you've proven that, you know, as someone, you know, you were, you were, you were a mother, you were like, you know what, this is what I need to do. And it was through your own experience. So what, what was the driver for that? And I think how do those experiences sort of drive innovation as, as you see it? Yeah, I mean, Mums in Tech really came out as a result of a personal need, a frustration of not being able to find a place where I could go and learn about coding with my little one. I had a two and a half month old and I had a two and a half year old. And all the coding boot camps I found were either massive time commitments and literally could not take a two month old to a boot camp and spend all day there, or they were late at night if they were free and nothing quite worked for me. And I just thought, well, you know, when you're in that situation, you really have two options. You can just sit there and say, well, okay, it doesn't exist, you know, tough, that's it. Or you do the scary thing. And, and this is what I say to founders every day. What you do, I totally admire because it's scary to go out into the world and say, look, I have this idea. It's never been done, but I believe it needs to exist. And then you suddenly find yourself trying to piece the you know pieces of a jigsaw puzzle which don't even necessarily exist yet so you're you're creating you're creating this you're creating your pieces and you're like okay let's build and let's start shaping but that passion and desire for it to exist is what drove me forward allowed me to think outside the box and i think this is what founders do on a daily basis they are imagining the what people would say is impossible. People said, it's never going to happen. How are you going to have a coding school with moms and babies? It sounded absolutely unreal. But I said, look, I'm going to try. And I think that's what founders do every day. They try. So, you know, it was a case of thinking about what do I have? What, what can I tap into? And I had the network. I had the network of entrepreneurs that I'd worked with in my corporate world at Silicon Valley Bank. And I said, well, I've got nothing to lose by asking them for help, asking them to help me think about a curriculum. I know what I wanted to learn. It just wasn't out there in the format which I needed. It needed to work around the school run. It needed to give me you know, the nuggets of information to help me understand how to go from an idea 
to a website or an app. And in between, I needed to understand product. I needed to understand UX, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, just giving me those highlights of all the elements of working in a tech company just to help me understand that path. And I thought, well, there must be other people who need to understand this as well, who might think I don't have a place in tech, who might think technology is just coding in a dark room. And how can we help demystify that? And that really was the thinking around mums in tech. How do I encourage this army of talented women from all backgrounds, so not necessarily working in tech already, but how do I inspire them to think about a, a career in tech? And and you know, when you're motivated and passionate about something, I think it's infectious. And I found myself, you know, somehow getting full engineering teams at the leading tech companies like Microsoft and 3 and all of them volunteering their time three hours a week for eight weeks to teach 15 women to give up two meeting rooms. And we all know that meeting room space is very, it's, it's a scarce commodity, but, but they gave it to us, looked after us and really made us feel welcome. And I think one thing perhaps I didn't appreciate at the very beginning was it also was an opportunity for them to understand the importance of really thinking outside the box as to the kinds of talent they can be attracting, thinking about retraining, thinking about return, you know, returners programs, people who had been in tech years ago, perhaps want to come back and retrain and do something different. And, and I think transferable skills is something that I'm really passionate about because having made three career pivots, I want people to realize that it's very possible if you're very curious and you're, you surround yourself with the right mentors, but also you put in the work. I think it's so important that people realize, you know, that there are many opportunities where you can transfer your skills, you know, as a, a lawyer into a person in tech, you know, many entrepreneurs come from a variety of backgrounds. And I think whatever skills and experiences you have, you can turn it into something new. I, I always think, you know, as humans, we don't realize that we can recycle. We are very recyclable. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course, of course. I think I've heard you talk about this in some of the, your 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 um your podcast and other media appearances you've done around lack of a the lack of a network and the challenges that come along along with that. So I guess how did you overcome those challenges? Not just even lack of a network, but also gender you know, gender biases, unconscious biases, and 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 thriving in spite of having to work probably four times harder just to get to zero, <laughs> just to get to zero, right? And 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 those those are very real challenges in 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 your life and perhaps. And so, how did you? I'm sure it's a continuous battle. So I won't say how did you overcome them because I'm still you still overcome them. How do you get your mind ready to overcome those challenges as, as they come to you? Because I think a lot of us also go through that, and you can let it define you. Or you can just push it out of the way and move on and, and create something out of it. So how have you, how have you sort of like, um, I guess, climbed that mountain, so to speak? <laughs> yes. And it's, it's a very big mountain. It's, it's, it's work in progress. And I think this imposter syndrome, as you say, is something that a lot of us battle with on a daily basis. So obviously, you know, did UCL and 
and all of my friends were sort of going off to investment banks. And I think even then I had a little bit of the imposter syndrome thinking, oh, I don't think I'll survive that culture. It, it, it seems a bit too aggressive for me. It's not it's not my thing. So obviously went off to, to Reuters and, and worked on the newsroom covering syndicated loans. And, and maybe that was the first point where I had to sort of say, look, you either overcome this imposter syndrome or are you just going to stay where you are in your little box and 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 when a recruiter said you know silicon valley bank is hiring and i was thinking well i know nothing about banking and and that was that was the truth i didn't know i didn't know anything about banking but i decided that it was up to me to sort of push through it and be open to new experiences and i think I sort of held a little bit of that, you know, on my journey. I was like, okay, I'm a little bit brave now, but still, like within within the you know the system, I was the only black person when I joined SVB. So that that in itself is something that you can't help but notice. You you just you look around and you don't see anyone that looks like you. And obviously, first of all, that's it feels like a bit of a responsibility. You're representing all the black people in your office. <laughs> you know, you're holding that flag, and you're like. I better not mess this up. <laughs> you know, so that was something that I was very conscious of. And and then it, it just made me sort of think of, well, let me just do this as best as I can. But I found that I didn't really put myself out there. There was a little bit of nervousness. I think I was still in my shell. So when you talk of network, when I was at SVB, I wouldn't say I had much of a, you know, an external presence. I wasn't on Twitter. My LinkedIn was still sort of, it was very early days. I, I wasn't really aware about building a personal brand as it were. And I think it wasn't until I started Mums in Tech that I realized that actually I need to own my narrative. And then I started thinking about, okay, well, who do I want to speak to? Who do I want to, to start building a relationship with and understand their path and that's when the whole notion of having a mentor really came into play as I looked for guidance on how to build it and um, wanted to understand how other people had built similar structures then I started to understand okay well I can do this I can I can start reaching out to people and, and that that first step is is the scariest because you think, oh, well, what, what do I bring to the table? Why would they want to talk to me? But actually, what I've discovered in, in this journey is that the people that we admire and they're way up there, obviously, in, in our minds, they've done all this stuff. They, too, have so much to learn. And, you know, there's that thing of reverse mentoring. It's real. They learn from us and they want to give back. And, and you know, I think everyone should recognize that they have something to give and everyone can teach something. And that's something I hadn't appreciated um, early on in my journey. And, 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 you know, you do that first one and the second one gets easier. And then I, you know, obviously set up a Twitter account and started getting comfortable with sharing my views. Obviously you start initially with one tweet here and there and you retweet, but you get comfortable with, with recognizing that your ideas matter and it's a journey. It's, I, I would never have anticipated to be where I am with my little blue tick, you know, <laughs> you know six, six years ago, I, I had like, 10 followers and of course of course of course you want to start this journey you start the journey and it's very lonely 
Yeah, it's very lonely, and you think about yourself, and you say to yourself, "Gosh, are my ideas even valid? Are they even real?" What is the tension point between building the narrative and being overexposed, brand-wise? Because it's 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 a slippery slope, right? And and how have you navigated that? Oh, this one is an interesting one because bless bless my mom, she is she's always like June, you you're telling everyone a lot. <laughs> She, you know, she's very private. We we have one uncle who's way out there, and he's up in the you know the spotlight. And he loves it, but I'd say majority of my family is still very very conservative. Husband as well, like he has zero interest in in anything to do with media. But I say to myself that when I was on my journey and I couldn't find anyone that looked like me that I could relate to, and I remember how hard that was, and. And I want people coming coming up on that journey to be able to see someone like me and find something relatable in what I've done. And this is why I am very conscious of sharing my journey as much as possible, obviously in the right medium. But I think it's it's if these stories aren't told, people won't know what is doable, what what that career trajectory, you know, trajectory can look like about the pivots and, and, and just that it's okay for it to, to take time. You know, it's taken me a long time to get to where I am and, but don't give up. And that's, that's why I do it. And, you know, I mean, I'm not going to on Instagram show my whole house, but I will, I show, I show snippets of my day to help people understand what it is I do, how I spend my time, because as they think about whether a career in venture capital is for them, they're probably looking to me to say, well, what does June do all day? So I talk about it. I talk about, you know, how I spend a lot of my time on Zoom at the moment, speaking to founders, hearing their story and helping them understand what it is I look for in a founder so that when they come to pitch to me, they feel, okay, well, June said that I've done the homework. So now I'm ready to go pitch to June. But had I had, had I not put it out there, it's like walking in blind. And I think the more transparency there is in the industry, the, you know, the much easier it will be for people to, first of all, raise investment, but also for other people to aspire to careers in venture capital and working in technology, which I think is, is what we need. We need more diversity at the table. Actually, and let, let's talk about that for a second. I mean, the finance space has been under quite a bit of scrutiny uh, when it comes to people of color. And gender, right? And in the last year, we've seen, as a result of all the you know, things around BLM, things around George Floyd, or what have you, we've seen a resurgence of these conversations. And you've seen this everywhere, whether it's in media houses, Bloomberg, Forbes, they all have now diversity writing things. You're seeing it with with with, with funds, whatever VCs and whatever. How real is this new this these new opportunities that are allegedly open up for people of color, for founders of color, uh, whether it's in Silicon Valley or in the, in the UK in the VC space or whatever, what have you? And then B, what is the what what is the delta between what is real and what is just buzz? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm sure you you saw the on the news the, the there's there's no racism in 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 the UK, which I mean there, that is so untrue, um, and I think it's so important that we acknowledge that the system needs to change. The structures that exist don't necessarily still promotes equality and that's the reality but i think 
yes, there's a lot of buzz. And I think we need to continue the conversation. So that buzz must, con- you know, must lead to constructive conversations, people challenging themselves and saying, well, are we doing the right things? Are we doing all we can to make our environment safe and welcoming to people that don't look like us? You know, and and this is, you know, the reality is most senior leadership is not black in the UK, um, as was demonstrated by, you know, the FT report that looked at I think it's gone to zero, zero, um, zero black um, representation at the board level, which is just is just awful. But I think um, people are looking inwards, and we're seeing that in where they're placing the jobs. You know, I'm conscious that there's there's a lot of groups now that have come up. Um, really focused on helping black founders and helping black and underrepresented founders get into venture capital. I'm part of a group called 10 by 10 VC, which is the very few black VCs in the UK. And and there is a massive drive working with Google and groups like Atomico um, just to increase, first of all, the visibility of of us and what what work we're doing, but also providing sessions where up and coming VCs can ask questions, um, can learn. Um, Diversity VC is doing a lot of work around this, included VC. So the work is being done, but I think we need something that can help to fast track it. And And I wonder what the real solution is because a lot of it is probably to do with unconscious bias and changing mindsets around perceived value, which it goes so far back. Where do we really start? What? How do you respond to the comments that black and female founders are over mentored? Yes. Yeah. I mean, the reality we just need to, to start funding them, and I'm really proud to say that we're we're just about to close. In fact, we just closed one yesterday, a deal into a black female founder. One is up up and coming, and and I'm really proud of that because that's why I joined the world of VC. So really, the the key is to start making those investments, not just claim that you've mentored you know a hundred founders. That that's not the key. We we need, and it's not just you know for the sake of being kind, these are products that need to exist because they are building services and products for the market that they understand is not men that are going to build it. It's it's these women. And I think it's important that investors recognize this. Um, there's so much opportunity. I mean, women represent, you know, half of the world. So why are we, why are we ignoring a whole group of talent? And I think um, it's one of those things where we just need to carry on challenging ourselves internally. Everyone needs to really make it a a conscious part of the process. You know, how how many deals have we funneled? Uh, How many have come from female founders? There needs to be accountability. I think everyone should be tracking this and really reflect and say, okay, well, where can we do better? How can we make sure we're reaching these groups and they know they can come to us and they'll be taken seriously? I mean, obviously we can't fund everyone and that's obviously right. And not every idea should get investment, but if it's a good idea, we should be backing them. And there's enough capital to go around. That's for sure. How do we bridge the gap between the diaspora, the African diaspora 
um, with folks on the continent. If we had enough, say, funding from Africans in the diaspora, or vice versa, or Africans in Africa who have who have capital who can actually set up some of these funds, we can break some of these things a bit more effectively. And not just that, but also if we did more to I don't know to also be inclusive with other funding, other other, other funding parties, whatever. So, funding side aside, what are your thoughts around as someone who lives in, who lives in London, daughter of Africa? What does that experience look like for you? And also in the diaspora, sort of what I call the diaspora integration. <laughs> what, what are your views around that? <laughs> what are your views around that? Uh, this this is something I think of on a daily basis. I mean, for me, the dream was always to to replicate Mums in Tech in Nigeria. Um, it's something that I I still see myself doing at some point. And I guess more immediately, I'm flying the flag, you know, in my fund and speaking to my team on a regular basis about the opportunities. I had the the chance to visit Lagos with Google for Africa, probably in at the end of 2019, and that was wonderful to to witness the talent, the incredible talent coming out of the continent. Obviously, going back and telling my team all about the exciting things, it's meant that we've now since had conversations with some of the founders that I met there. And we're in talks with funds on the continent about doing work together. Personally, my ambition is to start making small investments in um, ed tech companies and you know companies that are really moving the needle in closing the the income inequality gap and that could be fintech or it could be just helping people have access to constant electricity it's something that i know is such a challenge in in nigeria you know but that's going to be key to closing the education gap helping people have access to the incredible resources that we have online I, I want all the young kids to have access to the internet and be able to learn anything at any time. And and that's really the big vision for me, just being able to COVID, COVID permitting, being able to come more to Lagos and, and really spending time with the, the tech ecosystems out there and, and, and buying the flag. I think that conversation is important that we, we relay all the, the knowledge we, we, we sort of learn about on the continent and bring it back here. We're about to close the deal on a hair company and the founder is Zimbabwean. So she's innovating on hair extensions, which is, it's so unreal to believe that there has been practically zero innovation in that space. And I mean, look at me, I'm wearing extensions. It's one of those things we, it's, it's our pride and joy. We all, we all wear beautiful wigs and hair. And, and I think, especially, you know, there's the massive natural hair movement at the moment. And the challenge a lot of women face is when they try and get clip-ins or extensions, they can't find any that matches their natural curl pattern. So she is really innovating on that. And, and I think hair is a huge market. And I am so excited about the global opportunity. Um, and I think, you know, this is first of many first of many investments and and it's so exciting again she's obviously part of the diaspora and you know we're investing in her here but this is something that we see sort of really being huge sort of in Europe and and in Africa so you talked about edtech as one space where June is headed what's next for you the the, the queen of reinvention <laughs> what, what's next <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, hundred um, percent. You know, once borders are open, spending more time on the continent, really thinking about ways I can start that knowledge sharing, and um, 
giving back to to founders on the continent. I, I want to do more of that. I want to be investing um, initially small checks coming in sort of really pre-seed. And and a, and a big vision for me is is you know do more on the on the charity side as well. I want to you know that big dream to get books into the hands of children across Africa is is huge for me. It's something that I'm very passionate about, and um, it's a work in progress. I'm, I'm working on it at the moment. That, that, that's incredible. That's incredible. June, thank you so much for your time. I really admire the fact that I mean when you're talking about this earlier. The issues or questions around your va your values and living your values and being centered. I, I think it's so critical and so important. I think so many leaders um, these days are talking about it, but it's always refreshing when you talk to someone who's actually living it. And I think that's so incredible and so inspiring. So thank you so much for that. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a joy to speak to you. Thank you for listening to Afro Catalyst, presented by Boto Emerging Markets Group a leading investment and strategy consultancy focused on the global south. To find out more about us, please visit afrocatalyst.com. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button to stay up to date with future episodes. And let us know what you think by rating us wherever you're listening. I'm Isaac Kwaku Foko Jr. Until next time.